<clears throat> well, I've tried to divide up our subject today, the preaching of Jesus Christ, into five headings, uh, the definition of preaching, the objective of preaching, the target of preaching, the content of preaching, the technique of preaching. Uh, so, as we had from our reading, we preach Christ crucified, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What an ex enormous task we have. <clears throat> but what is preaching? Just to put it in a simple terms, preaching is a human activity in which a message is communicated by the leadership to energize the followers to the highest spiritual endeavors under God. Let's think of in the natural world inspiring speeches like uh, great um, military leaders I think we Scots always remember the Battle of Bannockburn and the famous um, poem putting words into Robert Bruce's mouth, Scots, we hey, we Wallace bled, Scots, we Bruce at Afton led, welcome to your glory bed, chains or slavery. Um, and it's inspired lots of Scotsmen to patriotism. Uh, these words. Even Napoleon was noted for his great speeches before some of his greatest victories. He spoke to the men and it energized them to the highest achievement. <clears throat> Nelson, before the Battle of Trafalgar, everyone knows it, went to school in my day anyway, England expects every man to do his duty. Simple words and yet they inspired great Achievements. I wonder, friends, if our messages we deliver Sabbath by Sabbath, do they inspire people to great things for God? Do they carry something away with them that resounds in their hearts through the week? <clears throat> After all, they're engaged in a mighty battle day by day with the forces of the Prince of Darkness. If there's anything that's becoming a reality these days, it's the battle situation in which we are. And very often it seems as though our backs are to the wall and our victory seems impossible, but no. Uh, so let's look at the objective of preaching I'm just asking you to ask yourself, really, what is your aim when you preach? Here's some suggestions. The objective is to convince the hearers how genuine the message is. Or, the objective is to deliver the hearers from despondency. Bring peace and joy. Is that what you're aiming at? The objective is to deliver hearers from delusion, very much a part of our 
culture today through imparting knowledge of the truth. Our objective is to persuade followers out of their failures and stir to active service. Are we aiming beyond the preaching to our people being active? The objective is to protect our followers from false teaching and to induce loyalty. Perhaps all of these things have something uh, for us. Uh, But I think perhaps that the the main (coughs) objective should be (coughs) to energize our people to endeavors for Christ. Are we energizing our people? Since preachers are instruments of God to bring in his kingdom, the chief objective must be to stir to active accomplishment of the Great Commission. Does that appeal to you as the purpose of preaching? You may differ. Uh, Looking now at the target of preaching, one can identify perhaps three targets of our call to preaching. There's the wide population of sinners. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We will lack followers if we don't impact the world and win followers from the allegiance of Satan. We're here to defeat Satan, release victims from the power of Satan. The next target is those who are one for Christ. They are converted. They need training and service. This includes inspiring them with a vision of the kingdom. The third target, the final target I would suggest is the enemies of the kingdom who are either directly opposing our Lord or who pretend allegiance but are promoting a false version of the message. Our preaching must be proclaimed to the enemies. I remember hearing one of the cases in which I heard Martin Lloyd-Jones was in Kelvin Hall in Glasgow. And he brought with him a book which he was holding up like this. It was called Honest to God by Robinson, Canon Robinson. And it was really a dismantling of the gospel. And he spent an hour dismantling that book. He almost literally tore it to pieces Uh, And it was a very powerful address. Are we engaged, friends, in this third calling of preaching to tear apart the (coughs) doctrines and propaganda of the enemy? (coughs) Now I'm going on to the third point, the, the content of preaching, which of course is a larger section. What makes up the content of your preaching? Well, according to the subject I've been given today, 
the content of preaching is Jesus Christ, or perhaps I should say Jesus the Christ. This is what Paul said, I know nothing among you save Christ and him crucified. First Christ and then him crucified. Do we sometimes forget that we have to preach Christ first and then the crucified Christ? Or as he said, we preach Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Does that sum up the content, the power of God and the wisdom of God? And another scriptural definition we can take from Acts chapter 8 perhaps we'll look at that for a little while the Philippian eunuch was preached to by Philip and he and from there he preached unto him Jesus from the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53 Uh, so our subject is preaching Jesus. What do we do when we preach Jesus? We can do nothing better than look at what the Philippian jailer, or assume what the Philippian jailer, no, sorry, the, the, Philip, the, uh, Philip the evangelist was saying to, um, to the Philippian eunuch. <coughs> of course it was providential, wasn't it? We can assume that uh, clearly, that he was reading that prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. And it was beginning at that place that Philip preached to him Jesus. What was that sermon summed up as Jesus? because the eunuch didn't understand who this man was. And so Philip's job was to identify this man. He was a man identified, and he was a man sacrificed. And he was preached to a man dissatisfied just look at that eunuch why was this so appropriate for this man there's three things about this man this is like a little mini sermon I'm giving you this man was dissatisfied this eunuch had left his country traveled all the way at great cost and uh, trouble to Jerusalem Because he was searching for something. He was a man dissatisfied. Because he was rich, but the riches didn't satisfy him. And perhaps the reason was this, that he was impotent. He was a eunuch, and that was a colossal problem for this man. It didn't matter how much wealth he had, He knew that he couldn't perpetuate himself and his vision and everything because he was impotent. Where could he find? Was there any solution 
to this problem. And of course, when he got to Jerusalem, instead of being accepted because he was a eunuch, he was automatically banned from the temple. As it tells you in the Old Testament. So he was hoping to be satisfied, to find the answer. And as soon as he got there, he was shut out. This man was religious. Otherwise, he wouldn't have come to Jerusalem. It was through my great religious center. He had got a hold of religious scriptures. The prophet Isaiah, he was religious, but he was rejected. He was reading. Are we preaching to people that, yes, perhaps they know their Bibles, perhaps they've read their Bibles, but they're baffled. I sometimes speak to people like that. They said, oh, I've read the Bible. Or one woman I was speaking to recently uh, said, oh, I've read the Bible cover to cover. I'm reading my Bible, but I don't see that Jesus is God. And try as I might, I failed, friends, to convince her. How would you convince her that Jesus is not only the Son of God? She said, oh, yes, he's the Son of God. That doesn't mean to say that he's God. Of course, you only have to, well, to us, it seems straightforward that he's the only begotten of the Father. If he's begotten of the Father, he must be of the same nature as the Father. She couldn't see it. She was baffled through reading. So was this man reading Isaiah 53. He was baffled friends. Some people have been attending our churches and our services for all their lives. And they're still sitting back. When time of communion comes, you'll find them back there. They're baffled. How do we cope? How do we deal with people like that? Excuse me. They can't be satisfied. And of course, all that we can do is preach Jesus. As I said, preaching Jesus means preaching a man who was sacrificed. It's a human sacrifice. And what was it about it that satisfied the eunuch? It's that this man was willing. It's the willingness of Jesus that is amazing, isn't it? Do we spend time talking about the willingness with this wonderful passage this morning about the Lord Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation. It's the willingness. <clears throat> because we are so unwilling. Our wills are the biggest problem in a sense, aren't they? And the wills of sinners, their unwillingness. But when this eunuch heard about the willingness, a man who was willing to be made nothing, this man uh, was, re- was crying out against his position, his impotence. You could say he was angry, he was about his situation, and here he found a man who willingly accepted to be cut off, cut off from the land of the living. And Philip said to him, this man was not only willing, 
He was willingly sacrificed, but he was totally sacrificed. It wasn't just one piece of his body that was cut off. He was totally cut off from the land of the living. He was totally excluded. He was taken outside the camp, as Hebrews says, totally rejected and banished. It's the totality of this sacrifice that we must preach if we're to reach every man and convince every man. Are we sure that we're covering totally the sacrifice of Christ? And the third thing, it wasn't only willingly and totally, it was intentionally. In other words, it was all planned. Uh, in fact, the whole world, you could say, was planned for this very objective, for the work of the cross. <clears throat> and Philip would tell him, no, this wasn't accidental, this wasn't just casual. This was the Creator's intention, even before he put the world in place, he made this world with the intention of putting his Son therein to suffer and die to win for himself a people. The intentionality, friends, eh, stuns me more and more as I, the more I think of it, the sacrifice. And this must have overwhelmed this eunuch. <clears throat> and then, of course, he found that what this man had done, he was able to identify with. We've got to connect these hearers to Jesus. What the eunuch did, sorry, what the uh, Philip did was he brought Jesus to the eunuch. Isn't that what we're doing when we're preaching? We're bringing the sinner to Jesus and we're bringing Jesus to the sinner. That's what we have to achieve. This um, identification. We found our identity in the identity of Christ. It began with this, a root out of a dry ground. That's a description of a eunuch, isn't it? He's a root out of a dry ground, he's impotent. And here he finds a man who is a root out of a dry ground. And so the two are brought together as a starting point. He was a ransom for the guilty. Let's, um, looking, I should be looking at the passage here. He was a ransom. He was a root. He was a ransom. I like alliteration. Um, he was a ransom for the guilty. This is the heart of our preaching, isn't it? <clears throat> He was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He paid the price for the guilty. And then, I just finished this little example with this, of his identification. He was recognized. 
he was recognized. We have to tell people, Jesus, that man who died 2,000 years ago on the cross, is recognized by God. What he did has been fully recognized. Isaiah tells you this in verse 12, where he says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. I'm giving him <clears throat> the reward uh, for what he has done. He is recognized by God, and so the obligation was now on the eunuch to recognize this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And he said, I believe with all my heart. And what joy took over <coughs> as he went on his way. Uh, yes, that's a kind of mini summing up of preaching Jesus. But it doesn't end there. We're told to preach Jesus Christ or the Christ. I think we um, can be a little bit um, diverted here because of what we have as a name, which is actually a title. Haven't we? F a, I think it's the, it's the kind of history of the translation that we have this word Christ in our translations, which of course is comes from the Latin Christus, which um, comes from the Christus in Greek, which comes, which is a translation of the Hebrew Messiah. This is something I can't understand. Why the Greek New Testament translated the word Messiah into Christos but when it came to translating the word Christos, they didn't translate it, they left it. And so, so often people think of this word Christ as a name, instead of seeing it as the title. And such a title it is. <clears throat> it's the Messiah. You know, when you go, it's really Paul that uses the word Christ. You don't see Christ much in the Gospels, in, in Gospel of John. How often do you see the name Christ? Yes, you see it when um, Jesus says, um, who is Christ? Who is the Christ? What think ye? He was asking the Jews, who do you think? Messiah. The Messiah is. And that was the crucial question, wasn't it? And that's why Paul, after meeting him on the Damascus Road, was possessed with this powerful reality that he was introduced to this anointed and appointed one. And uh, that uh, can be obscured if we don't realize the enormous effect this had on Paul and on his hearers. 
He said, what have I got to do now? I've got to tell my fellow Jews that the Messiah, this great and mighty and most powerful man ever to exist, has come. Their mighty son of David has come and accomplished his work and has established his kingdom. And uh, I am going to go through the whole world and tell high and low uh, who he is. That's what Jesus said to him. You shall come before kings. Why should kings hear this message? Because the fact that he is the Messiah means that all kings have now, are now obliged to submit and recognize and bow to him. That means we must go to everyone and tell them. We must go to the first minister of Scotland and say to him, you are guilty. You have rejected. You are not accepting the Messiah as your authority, as your highest authority. You're introducing all this legislation which is contrary to the one under whom you must rule. And you have become, you're, at, you're, at, you, you're guilty of treason. It doesn't matter whether it's Biden or Putin or President Xi or Khomeini, they are all guilty of treason because they are not recognizing the Messiah, God's ultimate authority, uh, has established his rule in this world, and anyone who resists that rule deserves to be judged and punished severely because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world by that man whom he has ordained. Are we missing something? I think we're missing a bit of authority here in our preaching when we, eh, we're not just asking sinners to come to, to Jesus. We're asking all men, it's time you bowed down to this total, absolute authority of God's king, God's representative here. And those who resist his kingdom are in for fearful and deserved uh, judgment. Uh, I'm not sure what men preached uh, in the old time. I guess we can, it's clear enough, have I studied enough about what men, men meant by preaching the law? Men were preaching the law to try and prepare souls to receive Christ and the offer of forgiveness. And that is, yes, that's central to the gospel. But when we look at the day in which we're living in, I wonder if our message is taking account of the one who has all authority in heaven 
and in earth. Therefore, go and disciple all nations. Um, so what, we're, what Paul was proclaiming again and again in his message was that you have to, you're under the highest obligation to confess your need to bow in submission uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I better go back to my notes now. Um, <clears throat> So here's encapsulated and personified the wisdom and power of God. When you preach the wisdom and the power of God, <clears throat> you're explaining that man has no legitimate alternative but to bow before Jesus. However, the main burden of our communication is clarifying and promoting the glory and the grace of this person and his function. This person defines our whole religion, our whole purpose in life, our whole hope in our predicament. Christ is all in all. Not only is he the power of God supplied to us, but he is the explanation of that power. It's not just raw power. It's a power explained uh, to us, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. This is overwhelming, isn't it? This is um, explosive, you could say. The claim that Paul is making about Christ, that our fellow citizens and our authorities and powers are acting in ignorance of the one who has created thrones and dominions and principalities and powers. They don't have any power except that Christ is supplying it to them. And the fact that they're misusing it it's horrifying. And what a judgment they're going to face. We have a message, friends, for Putin or for, um, for Sunak and for them all. Their first task then is to identify and declare the Messiah revealed in Scripture. These are the essentials of such, of promoting him. Let's break be just pinpoint some of these. First of all, he is the crusher of the serpent. We all know that, don't we? The seed of the woman shall crush the serpent. Jesus is a crusher of Satan. The usurper who stole Adam's kingly role as vice-regent of the Creator has to be deposed for man to reclaim his royal mandate from Jehovah. We know that the curses pronounced on the serpent precipitated a war which has been going on ever since. It's engaged the whole of mankind ever since. To succeed, one representative head, the Christ, had to engage in one-to-one -one conflict, 
conflict with the usurper. We know this took place at Golgotha. But the elect have been targeted by the God of this world, this usurper, as they belong to him, the rival, and are being used by him to establish his kingdom in this hostile territory. If this mission is to recover all the structures and institutions, godly institutions of man's life, then we have a message. We have a message for politicians, we have a message uh, for judges, for scientists, for agriculturalists, for educationists, for aesthetes, because Messiah must rule in all these areas and institutions of man's life. Do we realize how comprehensive is his authority in all these areas and how we must challenge these people in whatever role they have in society that it's time for them to yield submission to Christ. This is the situation today in which we are. Satan is operating full time to pervert and to dismantle the order that God has put in the hands of Christ. This was what's going on just now. The devil is busy dismantling Christ's order that God has instituted. <clears throat> Look at the family, for instance. Systematically, over the last 10 or 15 years, the government of Scotland has been attacking the institution of the family. It's an ordinance of God. It's, a, it's something that belongs above all to Christ because he is the head Christ is the head of the man, and the man is the head of the woman. And so you see the <coughs> line of authority by which Christ is the head of the home, and the sovereignty of the home is being attacked constantly today, and the government is determined to rob the father of his headship under Christ in the home. We have to preach against this because it's, it's challenging. It's, it's a direct attack on Christ and his lordship. To put this in another way, when you look at Revelation 6 and 7, you see the Lamb opening the seals. How often have you preached on the lamb opening the seals. Why is, why is he given this task to do? Because this is the way in which he's crushing. Crushing the head of the serpent. He's using all these catastrophes, war, plague, and earthquake, and everything else, all these disasters. Where do they come from? They come from the seals. The Lamb opens. Where did COVID come from? It came from Christ. He imposed it on this world in his authority to curb the work of Satan and to humble men. It's part of his authority. <clears throat> and uh, so... 
This is the crushing of the serpent. It's part of the gospel, friends. It's part of our mandate as preachers of the Messiah. <clears throat> but of course, we have to preach Christ and him crucified. This great and masterly ruler of all history and of everything in our lives. This is the amazing contradiction that he was crucified and it's only as we magnify the glory of the Messiah that we will get into perspective the marvel, the astonishment that he submitted to, a, you could say, annihilation. The momentous thing is that the apostle adjoins to Christ the word, him crucified. Here is the contradiction of the ages which gives us a gospel of two parts, so offensive that to the Jews it was a stumbling block. They couldn't get over. They had this glorious vision of a Messiah, and here they see him destroyed. That's impossible. We can't take it. To the Greeks, it didn't make sense in their philosophical framework. What hope is there for such an unacceptable message? <clears throat> the Lord of the universe is demeaned all the way to a disgraceful death. Well, the marvel of this contradiction is so glorious that the apostle said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross. He gloried in the disgrace. It's an astonishing thing, isn't it, that we have to preach. <clears throat> Here is the contradiction in one person. Glory and shame. Innocence and blame. Righteousness and condemnation. Harmlessness and yet torment. Goodness and severity, wrath and love, curse and exultation, life and death, weakness and power, man and God, all concentrated in this one person and his sacrifice. This divine sacrifice becomes the most powerful and most revealing event in history. It's the power of God and it's the wisdom of God. This is the event we have to expound and to declare passionately and extensively. So uh, Christ and him crucified. And uh, just to take up another point here about the glory of the Messiah, it's the knowledge for an ignorant world. <clears throat> I'm just repeating this juxtaposition which the preacher brings in. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, says Paul in Romans chapter 1 in the Gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed to whom? From faith to faith. In other words, it's like a stairway, isn't it? This is the stairway up which faith must climb into the intimate knowledge of God. 
It's only when we come and accept, receive, in other words, believe, uh, what has happened at the cross and enter into it that where faith lifts us up into the knowledge of the Father. And we are to lead men up this pathway constantly into this intimacy so that we are able to say, Abba, Father. Words that seem impossible when we feel the sense of our guilt. <clears throat> In fact, it's like this, says Paul. He talks about the great love and how great that love is. Wherewith he has loved us even when we were dead in trespasses and sins and has made us alive together with Christ, raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenlies, in Jesus, in Messiah Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Here in him is revealed the majesty of the mystery of the wisdom of God, says Paul, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by his Spirit to the holy apostles and prophets, Ephesians 3, 5 and 6. So there is more... <clears throat> More of the character of God is revealed in the atonement than in all creation and in all history. We said the heavens declare the glory of God, but the cross declares more of the glory of God. When Messiah dwells in your heart through faith, you are able, says Paul, to comprehend with all saints what is the width, the length, the depth, the height, and to know the love of the Christ, which passes all knowledge. Given this vision of the person of our Christ, our people will be inspired to love him through him who loved us. So let's look at love. I'm trying little by little to explain what I tried to preach. <clears throat> we can't, we have of course to preach the love of God, God so loved the world. <clears throat> it's only when we see the power and the glory of the divine Messiah that we'll be astonished that he's prepared to love such nobodies as we are. Preaching the cross must explain that God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, the Messiah died for the ungodly. The divine love is a great giving and a deep Drawing. I'll see that again. The, love, the divine love is a great giving God gave and a deep drawing. No one comes to me except the Father draw him. Here's a little story about love. Perhaps you've heard of Henry Havelock. 
He was a young gentleman <clears throat> in Victorian times who was obliged to take up a career in the army because he was a second son without inheritance. He opted to go to India to get quicker promotion. He wanted to rise up in the army. But when he arrived there, he met William Carey, and he was converted. He fell in love with Carey's daughter and married her. But now, as a Baptist, his hopes of promotion were dashed. You couldn't rise up in the British Army unless you were a member of the Anglican Church. Isn't that amazing? Compare that with military requirements today. Look at the RAF. You couldn't get into the RAF unless you were a woman or a trans or something. <laughs> what a con you see how far we've fallen. You couldn't be, a you couldn't be unless you were baptised, or, or, well, or christened, as they would say. You couldn't serve as an officer in the army unless you were a member of the Anglican Church. He was a Baptist. He was excluded. So he had no support, very little support for his poor wife. <clears throat> and she had no sense of management. She was a hopeless housekeeper. And so she got him into debt. But he was so patient. He never, he never um, criticized her. He was patient and faithful always. When the Indian mutiny, mutiny, sorry, mutiny threatened the whole empire, Havelock was brought out of obscurity. He was recommended to take command of a force to meet the mutineers in their vast numbers. Though hugely outnumbered, his brilliant tactics and inspired leadership broke through the enemy and he reached Lucknow and defended it successfully. For this, he was hugely promoted and knighted, Sir Henry Havelock. But he was stricken with dysentery and died before he could enjoy any of it. His wife, however, became Lady Havelock, was feted on her return to England and lived on a handsome pension the rest of her life. He achieved his desire to satisfy his wife. There's a lot there about love, isn't there? And it reflects something of the love of Christ too in his sacrifices and his achievements. <clears throat> and so, can we, friends, how far have we gone to demonstrate the love of Christ to those we preach to? Is, is it love that, that motivates us. You know, sometimes we really fail, don't we? Reminds me of um, Macramore, John McRae, the mighty preacher of the gospel in Lewis and other places. When he was a young man, he had a friend who wanted to marry uh, a noted 
young lady in the community. Her father was a military man, he was a captain or something, or a major. So she was very sought after. And this man sent John along to woo this girl for him. <laughs> don't think it would work today at all. But anyway, he went along to this the stadium point, I think, in Lewis, and uh, he tried his best and uh, to recommend his friend to this girl, and he tr tried more than once. And at last, when he was leaving, he didn't make, wasn't making an impression. Um, she said to him, um, uh, as she sort of said goodbye, uh, and Mr. McRae, what have you got to say for yourself? <laughs> and of course, that was the cue that, he, that um, meant that that was his future wife. <laughs> he realised that he was no use at wooing for somebody else. Is, is that a bit of a story like us? You know, we like to have quite a good name as preachers, don't we? But are we known as those who commend Christ, who know how to persuade others and woo others? Uh, for Christ. <clears throat> Maybe you've heard of the missionary couple who went to a wild, untamed tribe in Borneo. The love of Christ constrained them to reach these people. They learnt the language, very complicated language. They got into their canoe with the uh, with the, their Bible and their child and went down the river and landed on this place. Immediately landed swarms of these wild warriors, almost suffocated them, surrounded them, and they cried out to God for help. Well, they weren't harmed. They were taken to the chief of the tribe, and he said, we welcome you because we've heard that you have medicine that will cure our sicknesses. And on that account, they were received. But no sooner were they there than they said, we've got better medicine to heal your soul from your sins. And a wonderful work of God was done. They had a passion, didn't they? for sinners that we all must have. How much success are we having? Well, what passion do we have for sinners? How far is it taking us, friends? It puts me to shame at how little I'm doing after all these years and how little fruit uh, I've seen uh, I did do something. I went to Zambia <laughs> um, and um, the Baptists who invited us didn't know that we went without any stipend. We didn't have any stipend from the church because we'd left the residual ch free church. We had no earnings. They thought because we were white, we were just full of money. And we had to tell them all we can give you is the glorious doctrines of grace. We'll train your men. And thankfully, you know, 
these pastors, one or two didn't, were always on the make, but most of them gladly rejoiced to hear the riches that we were able uh, to share with them. And that work's still going on. It's going from strength to strength. Although our church doesn't have much part in it now, it's still going on and more and more hundreds of pastors are being trained there. It seemed a little sacrifice to make. But um, if we have a vision, friends, it will take us further and further and willing to make sacrifices. So it's this drawing love that we need. Are we preachers that draw or repel? Um, You know, it's not just enough. I'm just being rather simple and practical here. Um, For instance, my wife loves me, and one of the ways I know it is that she goes to a lot of bother to present uh, good meals to me, uh, lovely meals presented to me. Well, of course, she could easily just present uh, raw vegetables and put it on the table, but she goes to a lot of trouble. Why does she bother? It's just love that makes her want it to be as attractive as well. Friends, if we love people, we'll make the gospel as attractive. We know we're giving them the truth, but are we presenting it in the most attractive way? That's why I I finish with the techniques of preaching, uh, which perhaps we we might be despising a bit. But I think we do have to Why do we have to learn techniques? Because we find them all over the Bible. We find many, many techniques that were used in preaching in the Gospel. Some may feel that we just present the plain truth and that will do the work. Just plain truth. Friends, that is wonderful. I agree, it's great. But is it doing what the scriptures have told us to do? Is it fully doing, I should say? Paul said, by all means, save some. By all means? What's he talking about? I mean, some people might be like Aeneas Sage of Lacaron, perhaps you've heard of him. Aeneas Sage, he was the first Protestant minister in Lacaron meeting these wild Highlanders, uh, uh, England Highlanders, and uh, of course they had no Sabbath day, they used the Sabbath day for their sports and their match, wrestling matches, and he was a powerful man on the stage, he couldn't get anyone to come to the church, so he went along to the games on the Sabbath day, and he challenged the, the champion wrestler there, and he wrestled with him and pinned him to the ground, and said, I'll let you go if you come to church. (laughs) And um, the man agreed. And he was so powerful that he drove all the people into the church. And he was the first convert in Lacarne. Well, maybe none of us are up to that job today. (laughs) Uh, But do we despise that method just because uh, it was a physical effort should we despise these kinds of 
uh, ways, of course, that's the outward ways, but what about uh, the techniques with which we uh, preach <clears throat> uh, what's called a popular sermon? When I was in college at my training, a long, long time ago, um, we were demanded to give a popular sermon. I thought, that's not a nice name for a sermon, popular. But that's what they used, time-honoured name. This had to be preached in an Edinburgh congregation on the Lord's Day before the professor of practical theology, Principal Mackenzie. I still remember I had to preach on 1 Peter 1 verse 3, lovely text. The objective that we to show was to present a lecture, not to present a lecture, but to close the gospel in terms that gained the public's attention, gripped their hearts. Isn't that important? Isn't that why George Whitfield got the nickname the Divine Dramatist? He dramatised the gospel. You've probably heard of the occasion in which he was invited to preach by Lady Huntingdon before a, a great number of the aristocracy and the gentry. And as he was preaching about some poor sinner about to drop into hell and begin to slide down a cliff and he went into every kind of detail about this man getting uh, more and more dangerous and uh, the host who was sitting in the front jumped and said, he's gone, he's gone. He was so gripped by the dramatic presentation of the gospel. Is that, is that wrong, friends? Or isn't that the kind of thing that we needed Needed today that you know the gospel the preaching is is an art it's a skill it's an art it's aesthetic what's the opposite of aesthetic anesthetic <laughs> are you an anesthetic preacher you put people to sleep or are you aesthetic <laughs> you waking people up Friends, we can use all kinds of means and illustrations and don't let's despise them. Let's think of how the men that began preaching the gospel, they were all, they, 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 when they were converted in the Roman Empire, some of these men were trained in rhetoric like Augustine and Chrysostom and they were gripping preachers. They could they move their audiences powerfully because of the devices that they used, the structure they used to grip the mind and the heart of the hearers and lead them to a climax of, of persuasion and emotional experience. The whole persons were utterly convinced because the auditor had put everything in to the art of persuasion. I believe in that. We don't need to go to secular authors for this. You find it in the Old Testament. These devices were used. Look at the beginning of Amos. Amos is condemning, he's condemning the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Edomites, and, this, and the, even Judah. And then, after he's done all that, bang, he hits he hits the Israelites square on the face. 
because they were off guard. They thought, this prophet doesn't, isn't worried about us. He's, we're really enjoying everyone being condemned. Then bang, he hits them fair and square. He used a rhetorical device for it. Isaiah uses it too. I'll sing a, a song of my well-beloved regarding his vineyard. It's a song. Will everyone that thirsts come to the water? He's using illustrative, alliterative, he's using dramatic language. And um, I remember hearing of David Patterson, who was a well-known evangelist preacher in, uh, in the church of um, second half of the last century. He was preaching in Kenneth Street in Stornoway, and his sermon was called The Voyage of the Ship, Man, Soul. The Voyage of the Ship, Man, Soul. And it was a dramatic representation of the journey of a soul through the storms of life and the rocks of life. And it was just so dramatic that everybody was in tender hooks. And uh, it was the talk of the town. Everybody was talking about that sermon until the evening service. And the, you couldn't get a seat. There was only standing room at night in the service that evening. And you say, well, that was just making people excited. I don't, I don't think so at all, my friends. I think it is the fact that all these people heard powerful preaching of the truth that they never forgot. You know, sometimes I can't even remember what I preached myself last Sunday. So ask yourself, can you remember? Is it memorable? Is it gripping? Is it riveting? Uh, just look at how the, the psalms that we sing, we, we don't realize that many of them are in wonderful, brilliant Hebraic form. Perhaps um, James Grace can tell us more about that. But uh, uh, we all know, for instance, that the 119th Psalm, that wonderful exposition of the power of the law and the truth of God, it's all fitted into this strict harness of the alphabet, beginning with Aleph, Gimel, and so on. And the writer has imposed this strict... uh, shape, form, structure onto his expression of the truth. Why did he do that? Well, it's because people couldn't read and write in those days. Hardly anyone could read and write. And so that Psalm 119 became well known all over Israel. Why? Because it was so easily memorized. People could go home after hearing it once or twice and say, oh, what was that first Aleph? What was that second Aleph? What was that third Aleph? It was a brilliant device for imparting and embedding the truth in the hearts of the people. And we're, of course, missing that out. Even a psalm like 34, I believe, which is a real um, sob of uh, confession and then joy, very emotional psalm, And yet it's in a strict poetic structure. So as people could memorize it and remember it, 
Let's look at alliteration, for instance. It's much despised, and yet, as we've said, Scripture is full of it. It's a tool by which people can memorize the problem, friends, we're facing is... Am I going on too long? Time to stop, <laughs> isn't it? Yes, all right, I'll stop in five minutes. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> I was afraid I was going to be run out of words, but anyway, uh, I think my second last page. Yeah, <coughs> alliteration is a very helpful advice. We don't realize that it's estimated that people only take away 10% of what you preach on a Sabbath day. You've put so much into that sermon. Only 10% is remembered. How can we overcome that problem? You've put so much good stuff. And you say these people should get it. But sadly, they're not getting it. They're not remembering it. And they might have it at the time. But to remember it, you have to use some kind of device, hooks on which they can hang their sermons. And uh, so this is the technique of preaching, which I should think I should, I should just mention in closing some of my own experience briefly um, from preaching that I've heard over these, I told you I've heard Martin Lloyd-Jones and others, great men like like that over the years. Uh, of course, I listened to my father more than anyone else, a preacher in Dumbarton, and he was a very reserved person. I don't remember much of his sermons, and yet all his congregations increased, doubled, many of them. And the only way I can account for this is his prayer life. And I think that's a good note in which to end. Your prayer life is what makes the difference in, in your preaching. I still remember, uh, although I don't hear, remember what my father heard, I still remember my mother, and she'd be sitting there with tears running down her face. And during the preaching, and she would go home and tell her mother, and again the tears were running down her face as she recounted the sermon to her. And I think that's because of the prayer. Just one little item about his prayer life was this he went every Saturday night when he'd finished his preparation, he would spend time praying for every minister in the church every Saturday night. <clears throat> Isn't that something worth copying? Some of these men were quite opposed to him. There was quite a bit of tension at times. Didn't stop him praying for them. Yeah. And um, another man who was a man of prayer, I think, was W.R. Mackay, who used to, was a chaplain during the war in North Africa in the forces. And he was very often invited when there were special services being held. And he had much fruit. And perhaps the secret was that it came out that he very often spent a whole night in prayer before he preached. A whole night in prayer. I'm sure you've heard of John Welsh, the man who transformed air 
from a vicious feuding town into a godly gospel town. He said on one occasion, I don't know how any man can spend a whole night without getting up to pray. We must pray, friends, and I think we must pray for the downfall of this religion that's overtaken our land, this woke religion, which is a total return to paganism. It's, it's blotting out all the godly standards and institutions that have been established in our land since the Reformation. It's dismantling them bit by bit. And if we pray, friends, like Elijah, we can bring it down. It won't last if we pray. And uh, so I think not only must we pray ourselves, but we must rally our people to be people of that gather together. In times of revival, this happened, and it'll happen if we do it, I believe, too. If our people gather together, our women gather together for prayer, our children gather together for prayer, our fathers gather together for prayer. And when there are mighty challenges to the church and the gospel and the kingdom of Christ, get people to gather uh, for prayer. I'll, I'll finish there.